Microsoft's past is full of stories. Its early period of corporate domination in the 1990s was followed by a period of government antitrust scrutiny and a period of unsure product direction. Today, Microsoft's focus on the cloud has allowed the company to regain its footing with a clear trajectory for growth. Since 2002, Richard Campbell has chronicled the Microsoft developer community as the co-host of .NET Rocks, a podcast that was originally about the C-sharp .NET framework. Today, it's more about the broader Microsoft developer landscape. Richard also founded Humanitarian Toolbox, an open-source set of tools for assisting disaster relief organizations. And I got to hang out with Richard at Microsoft Build recently. It was great to chat with him, and it was also great to chat with him in this episode today. We talked about a lot of different things, and Richard's quite a good speaker, so it was really fun to hang out with him. Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors for Q3. If your company has a product or a service, or if you're hiring... Software Engineering Daily reaches 23,000 developers listening daily. You can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, and I would love to hear from you. I hope you like this episode. Richard Campbell, you are the host of .NET Rocks. You're also the creator of Humanitarian Toolbox. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Wow, glad to be here, man. And didn't we have a good time at Build together? We did. We were just last week at Microsoft Build, where I was invited by you and some other people at Build who are organizing podcasts. And it was a really nice setup because there was this row of glass booths that were essentially <laughs> recording studios with mics yeah. and everything set up. It was a really nice, or- organized place where we could just hang out and do podcasts. Well, I, I always think in terms of, you know, I, I make podcasts as I like creating things. All of the other stuff that goes around podcasts, around the audio engineering and, heck, the marketing and website and so forth, that's all the necessary paraphernalia to get to content creation. So when we were designing that space at Build, it was about how do we let the content creators just create content mm-hmm. and not have to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you were one of the first podcasters ever, and <laughs> I think you know it's it's worth pointing out that podcasting has not gotten significantly easier since those earliest days. Is that right? Yeah, well, and, and it's really Carl Franklin, my, my partner in crime there at .NET Rocks, who, who had the vision. He was a, he's a big NPR guy. He loved car talk. He's from, the, from New England, and you know, those two guys from Boston were amazing. And so in a lot of ways, we became the click and clack of, of .NET. But uh, he started back in 2002, which is like three years before the word podcast even existed. That's why if you look at the website, it says the Internet Audio Talk Show for .NET developers, because we, we were first. I was a guest on episode number 69, and then I came on board as co-host for ep- starting in episode 100, which is like February of 2005. So technically, I'm the new guy, although admittedly, that was 12 years ago when we've made another 1,400 podcasts together. Does it ever seem strange that we've been running at breakneck pace with the improvement of the internet, and yet... Podcasting, it seems like podcasting should have gotten to where it should be as easy as blogging, for example. Yeah. But it's still, there's still some frictions. What are those fundamental frictions to podcasting that make it still 
strangely difficult and hurdle-laden? Well, I think capturing audio well is harder than it looks. And it's got that bicycle shed problem aspect. Because we've all listened to recordings, we, we, it's hard to value that it's hard. So actually, you know, getting that stuff together isn't, isn't trivial. And then mixing it into something that is fun to listen to, like you just don't know why it didn't work. And, you know, there is some education behind that. But then it's the bigger machine. You know, how are you actually going to, to turn this into something sustainable? You know, the business of podcasting is, is relatively archaic. I, admittedly, I've been in this for a long time now. And, and in some ways, I'm a dinosaur fighting to try and look at the more modern ways. We always approached it very much from a radio perspective. A lot of contests, ways to survey people so that we could speak to sponsors about you know, why are we doing these things. But I'm with you that, you know, I'm still basically using the same microphone I used all those years ago. And I have fairly expensive commercial audio equipment now because uh, I care about how good stuff sounds and it's not portable and it's not simple. Is the job of a software podcaster, I mean, you mentioned you're like an internet talk show. Mm -hmm. Software software podcaster seems like some combination of a journalist because you're reporting about facts and you're condensing large volumes of information to something that's consumable by an audience but I guess you also have to be sort of a radio personality. You're also kind of a like a, a documentation writer because you're explaining these, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I know when I'm preparing for a show with some framework that I'm unfamiliar with, I'm usually like looking through the documentation or reading a Medium post that was written by the founder. And you have to be able to break down those long screeds of technical information into spoken word it's, and it's, it's kind of a unique role. So how do you see yourself as a software podcast? Are you a journalist? Are you a reporter? Radio personality? You know, I find like I, I flip hats a lot. So I'm, my personal passion, what I really enjoy, is the research side of thinking about where development needs to go in the next three to six months. Because I'm doing all the content planning. And, and by the time I'm picking a guest in a topic, I've already worked on that problem a fair bit. But the moment you start the recording, I have to take that hat off and put on the hat of representing my listener because I want to ask the questions that they would ask. They're just trying to understand this new technology or this particular technique. And if you've immersed yourself too, so deeply in it that you kind of know it, well, now it's just two experts battling as opposed to, you know, help me understand this. So I, I think that's part of the challenge is you do have to change gears and uh, and build the different pieces that matter. Certainly on a content plan perspective, uh, it's the architectural role of, you know, what is this industry doing and where is it going? But from an interviewing perspective, it's uh, how do I help people understand this? The title of the show is .NET Rocks, although we've gotten to a place where it almost seems like the language that people use to write code is less important than the frameworks or the cloud services that we're using and obviously you know you want to use the language that plugs into those things as well as possible but there seems to be less stress on oh i'm a .NET developer or i am a java developer do you ever feel hamstrung by the title of the podcast absolutely and and certainly the the fortunes of .NET itself over the past 15 years have waxed and waned at times too and we've stopped worrying as much about being about the .NET framework as we have been about the .NET developer. Because the contemporary .NET developer 
doesn't only work in .NET and really never has. You know, even going back to 2002, if you were, a, a, you know, you're, you were just getting into object-oriented development in some respects on the Microsoft stack, but you still wrote SQL. You know, the, you did speak multiple languages and you did think in different ways. And web development was relatively new then, and the approach that ASP.NET, ASP.NET, specifically web forms took, was different from a lot of other ways to get on the web. And we can argue whether it was better, but it did its job. The, it is interesting when you look at the current landscape where we are now in the, homo, the heterogeneous client world, right? There are many different devices in many different sizes, and they all have their own ways, and they're all important. And so in some ways, you're much more multidisciplined. A .NET developer today has a lot of different skills, and they may try and specialize, but often they're looking broadly at the different pieces they want to use, and maybe some of that runs in the cloud, maybe some of that is some legacy code that runs on-prem or in a cloud architecture, and the devices, well, they can be all over the map. Hmm. I hear great things about .NET, and when I read about it, it seems like a language that's quite pleasant to work with, but it's almost taboo among certain crowds. Like, I remember my software engineering teacher in college, somebody asked a question, you know, he was presenting some piece of code on the screen, I think it was Python or Java, and somebody in the, some some student asked, so how does this look in .NET? And and the, the lecturer's response was, isn't .NET the proprietary language of Microsoft Corporation? The student's <laughs> like, yes. And he's like, all right, next question. Nice. So, so, and of course, that statement wasn't accurate, right? I mean, .NET's not a language at all. It's a platform. And both C Sharp and the .NET base class libraries were published as ECMA standards, even going back to 2002. The real issue I think a lot of people have if you talk about the original .NET, and, and I, will, I will happily put on the hat, especially for this show, of .NET historian. Because I've been through all of this, and while I will resist mightily being a Microsoft apologist, they have made serious mistakes in the, in the past and been punished for them. Hmm. The early days of .NET, that first five, six years, and this is, I think, what most people remember, uh, even if they can't articulate it, is it was any language, although it was really C-sharp, and one platform, which is Windows. Mm. But since those days, starting in sort of the 2008 through 2010 and now ultimately to 2017 timeframe, they have moved .NET out of the Windows space and into this. It's a platform that runs wherever you want it to run. And the, and the language itself, the, the, this thing they call the Roslyn Project, and you hear that term every so often, and it went on for way too long. But what they really did was they rewrote C-sharp, and they rewrote C-sharp in C-sharp. And that is a big cultural shift for Microsoft, too, because an awful lot, in fact, for a long time, the majority of developers inside of Microsoft, they were all C++ programmers. And so their relationship to their customers was very complicated because they thought differently about the tools they were building and how they were being used. The rewrite of C-sharp in C-sharp generated a block of C-sharp programmers inside of Microsoft that relate much more strongly to the customers that are using it. Hmm. And it's one of the reasons that C-sharp's had this sort of renaissance around it. And now the .NET framework has come along for the ride as well. Hmm. Can you talk more about the Roslyn project? I've heard of that. I don't quite know what it is. 
Well, and it, what it was was the rewriting of C-sharp. So C-sharp grew to a certain point with, it, with its feature set, being developed entirely internally, uh, led by Anders Halsberg and Mad Torgensen. But they hit a point where they had, to, they had an inflection point. What do we do next? How do we go forward? And one of the thoughts was this idea of compiler as a service. Can we encapsulate your compiler so it's not this unique monolith that has to be treated separately? And at the same time, there were forces on it saying, shouldn't it be open source? Because the language never made Microsoft money. I mean, that was always the argument about shifting to open source. It's like, these are not the things that make you money. Mm. So, you know, let it go. Like, it's not important. And they ultimately got there, but it was a rewrite. And the, but the rewrite was also a shift of language to go to these core concepts of what it takes to build a compiler using its own language and then expanding the feature set within the language. It makes it a more coherent product in that sense that it's, it's using its own metaphors internally. It extracted it from the operating system and the, even the platform. You can use C-sharp in a lot of different places, sort of the way that JavaScript can be used in a lot of different places. And certainly, you know, open the door to, do you want to, you know, today when you look at the way Visual Studio actually analyzes code as you're writing it, that is the C-sharp compiler continuously running in the background. Hmm. So Roslyn was the code name for that rewrite. And now we just call it C-sharp. How does the evolution of C-sharp to this compiler as a service stuff, how does it compare to Java becoming this JVM platform or the LLVM platform where you have an intermediate language that improves the quality of all of the other languages that are built on top of it? I, I think you're very, very similar. In, 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 the, in the Microsoft landscape, in the .NET landscape, that's the common language runtime. And that was a core concept right from the very beginning that they, you know, when the they launched .NET in 2002. It was 22 languages that were available for it. They have a version of COBOL that runs in .NET. They had a version of Eiffel that ran in .NET. Now, I mean, a lot of those things fell away to some degree. They certainly never remained in the prominence that C-sharp and VB.NET had. But the upside to those common language runtimes is, A, you have that abstraction layer, this intermediary layer, that allows you to shift the underlying platform around. And if you think back to what's happened in the intervening 15 years, that was the development of 64-bit, which you know Intel initially went in the direction of the Itanium for that, a completely different architecture. And .NET was going to be able to compile to Itanium without you changing any code. It was just a different underlying runtime. But it also allowed the creation of new languages. And in the, in the .NET space, the new language that has actually gotten people very excited is F-sharp. And that was developed out of uh, uh, Microsoft Cambridge of a man by the name of Don Syme, who figured out that this common language runtime in the Visual Studio development environment meant that he didn't have to build those things while he experimented with language. And he's deep down, he's a Haskell guy, but don't quote me on that because I still can't get my head around Haskell. But he wanted to build a functional language that ran in that space, and they ultimately commercialized it. He was just a, he was a researcher and a brilliant one. There's no two ways about it. But the the .NET team as a whole recognized it and brought it into the forefront. So now we have this sort of functional first, although not functional only language, because it does understand objects in the form of F-sharp that also compiles to IL and takes the advantage of that underlying layer. So I, you know, I absolutely believe that people who get the JVM are virtually identical in thinking to people who get the CLR. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're both living in managed memory worlds with just-in-time compilation and the pluses and minuses that those things represent. Java developers and C-sharp developers are wildly similar. mentioned you would not be the Microsoft apologist. Uh, I'm willing to take the role of the Microsoft apologist. I did some shows a while back about, well, relating to Microsoft's case against the government or with Mm -hmm. the government. Uh, I mean, I was just a kid when, I guess, so I, I, I think I was like eight or nine or maybe seven years old when the Microsoft case against the government happened. I had no idea what it was, what it was, what was going on. So when I studied this a little bit over last summer and I read some books about it and I, I watched some videos and I kind of studied the case and looking at it in retrospect, especially after seeing how things have evolved since then, how Linux has evolved and Apple has have evolved as these things that are basically disjoint from the Microsoft platform and looking at how that has happened relative to the perspective that the accusers had of Microsoft being this totally dominant force it's really striking and it makes me think that Microsoft really got hobbled reputation-wise, and I mean, I, I think there were some actual actual constraints put on the company due to this this case. What's your perspective? I mean, looking back, do you think that the, this government intervention was for the best, or what's what are your thoughts looking back on the, that series of events? Well, it's, when you Go back to 98, you know, when the Department of Justice starts this investigation and the, the, the two years that this whole thing takes, or 18 months, Microsoft was in a stunningly dominant position, uncomfortably dominant, 90% of the operating system space. And uh, that's very challenging. You know, you, you have to tread lightly at that point because you sort of own everything. And, you know, the, the original complaints, if you go back to even earlier than that, were things like Microsoft, from a simplicity point of view, simply said to hardware manufacturers, look, rather than us trying to count every license of Windows, every time you sell a PC, we'll charge you a fee. Now, that, of course, made things simple for the vendors, but it also discouraged them from installing any other operating system. And that is when you're already in a 90% space on monopolistic behavior. There's no other way to describe it. You know, it would be unfair to say anything else. And in the context of that, which they subsequently stopped doing after some pressure from legal entities, when the internet became wildly important, it was going to be the thing, the fact that they bundled the browser into the operating system, essentially to the exclusion of all others, so that they controlled the majority of people's view to the internet, you could see that that was seriously concerning for a lot of folks. They were going to take it the way they wanted to take it. And the, the lawsuit at, at, with Sun Microsystems came down to a product called J++. Before .NET, before C Sharp, the first gig that Anders Halsberg did for Microsoft when he first came to Microsoft is he built a version of Java that ran on Windows. That's J++. And, you know, you could understand Sun's concern about that. If you've got 90% of the operating systems running Windows and you have a version of Java built for Windows, going to be optimized for Windows, going to take advantage of specific Windows features, well, that's going to be the most effective version of Java out there. I hear stories that there was 
there were folks inside of IBM that were running and were developing in J++ back then. And so with all of those concerns, people piled on pretty hard. This, this dominance was going to get very serious. And Microsoft had been used to being the scrappy underdog, trying to grow, to you're trying to be successful. In fact, if you look at all tech companies, and I put this on Apple, I put this on Google, they know how to chase. They know how to be the underdog, trying to be successful. But they struggle to lead. And you don't always know when you are leading, when you are dominant. And so when Microsoft got into that position of being in leadership and still had that scrappy underdog win at any cost thing, and you're actually the 800-pound gorilla, you do things that are simply not appropriate, and, and government's going to come for you for that. And I, you know, if you watch some video, Jeff, you must have watched Bill Gates's disposition to the congressional committees in 1998. Yes. He did not handle that well. There is no other way to describe it. That aggravated or exacerbated the situation substantially. Well, and he didn't. He didn't handle it well, but nonetheless, what the government is supposed to intervene on is antitrust, which is behavior that can decisively negatively impact consumers from that anti-competitive behavior. So there's nothing wrong with being a monopoly. There's nothing wrong with right. totally dominating. What, when, it, when it gets bad is when it actually hurts the consumer experience. And my sense of all the, the, you know, the, the ire that Microsoft generated was that even though it was like, okay, yes, they were taking such a dominant position and they were bundling the browser in, it's really hard to understand whether that negatively impacted the consumer experience and even if it did, I think that if there are market forces that look like they're going to disrupt that antitrust situation, then you would rather leave it to the market forces than try to try to go through some contrived government intervention by bureaucrats who don't understand technology at all. And, you know, as we've seen, that probably would have happened regardless. Again, Linux being a pr fairly disjoint system, although I've sure. heard... Things like, oh, you know, Microsoft could have messed with the network stack so that Linux computers wouldn't be able to interface with Microsoft computers. That I, I would be really, you know, I would be more sympathetic towards government intervention of. But just looking at how the court proceedings played out, just, I don't know, it does, didn't and, and seem... I don't know if they ever made that argument. The, the, the argument really was, because we all have to run on Windows, because Windows is the dominant platform... Internet Explorer is always going to have an advantage over everybody else, and we want to have our fair shot. And, and you know, that and, was the and argument. Yet, and I, and I yet, still don't know that it actually impacted the consumer at that point or not, because consumers actually want consistency. They do. You know, we want the one right way. Even developers want the one right way. If there was one dominant way to build software, one way that worked for everything, that'd be kind of cool because it'd be simpler. But it, the reality is, of course, more complicated than that. Well, and yet I'm using Chrome on my MacBook right now. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I've got Safari bundled. I hear that Safari can run faster and it's more memory efficient and whatnot, but Google makes a better browser. Right. Well, Safari, for whatever reason, has chosen not to keep up with current standards. And so you're finding some pages have a tough time in Safari that work better with Chrome. I talk to web devs all the time that are building websites that work for the modern Internet, and then they make a separate one for a Safari. Right. Hmm. That, it, that's, it, you know, that's very comparable to 
the 2004 time frame where XP comes with IE6, which doesn't even have standardized CSS1, and along comes Chrome and, and the like to try and fix that particular problem. And, and now, now you could talk about, and this is some of the things they proposed, although there's no evidence this actually happened, rather than them fix their browser, which they ultimately did do, they just hobble the other guy's browser. So it doesn't matter that they're actually complying with new standards and moving forward. Their stuff doesn't run as well on Windows. Well, you mentioned the developers love the run one right way. Yeah. And, 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 and yet there is such cognitive dissonance because you'll hear developers say, oh, Google is a monopoly or Amazon is a monopoly. We need to break these things up. And it's like, no, these are simply the best ways of doing e-commerce, the best way of doing an internet search. Why, why do you want it any different than that? Well, and it, always the question is, and again, I'm not going to necessarily be the advocate of this, but you know, we have evidence that this happens, because otherwise you stifle innovation. When you get to a leadership role, you can afford to get lazy and work on other things, go conquer other markets rather than continue innovating in the space. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I mean, it, it, I, I don't feel like Google has innovated much on search lately. One would argue search is perfect, but I'm pretty sure that's not true. Hmm. I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. I I just I never have trouble finding what I'm looking for using Google. And and also there are so many other problems that we need tackled other than search. Do we really sure. need to create a, a a disruptive environment for for search? Well, and uh, and these days, if you're actually searching for commercial good, you're going to Amazon anyway, according to the this current stats. So. Right. Some way searches and uh, and or Facebook is grabbing a chunk of that as well, so it you know, there that market is starting to be somewhat more disrupted. To, uh, and you know, I think a more innovative space to look at right now are the different cloud providers and how they're each approaching the problem from a different angle. And that's where I think competition is super compelling. Or even look at JavaScript. You know, JavaScript became an incredibly vital language. Because I think because of the duel between the Chakra engine and the V8 engine, the Chrome team and the IE team trying to make the fastest browser, that competition suddenly created two stunningly good JavaScript compilers that you could take out of the browser and do other things with. Without the V8 engine, Node wouldn't exist. And this idea that, we, that JavaScript has matured into quite a good language on its own, it starts with great compilers. Okay, let's go down these these two paths. And, we, and by the way, we will get to humanitarian toolbox eventually. The the project that you're that you've put a lot of work into, and I I have a lot of questions about it. But absolutely, since you brought up cloud providers and JavaScript, these are definitely topics that I would love to explore with you. So let's go JavaScript first. So mm -hmm. help us understand. This is not something I've delved into. I want to do a show on V8, and I should do a show on Chakra too. But sure, explain how. You know what you just said. Give give more detail on why these two different approaches to breaking down JavaScript have led to market competition that has increased the performance of JavaScript. Well, you go back to as HTML5 starts to emerge as a standard. Okay, where where they're starting to come out of committee and and it, I think it's a kind of a cool way that it was approached for the most part because you have the Apple folks working in the Safari space, you have the Google folks work in the Chrome space. You have Microsoft Works folks working in the IE space. And they're all part of these committees as well. And they have different opinions about the way HTML5 should be created and the, and the new versions of JavaScript and the new versions of CSS. 
But the way they manifest that is really to ship beta features in their browser and encourage developers to experiment with them and then come back to the committees with evidence showing how this has worked, how it hasn't worked, you know, what makes things better. And from that duel, from those pressures back and forth, they make better and better, faster compilers. They incorporate the GPU so that now they're, you know, Canvas would not work without the GPU being harnessed the way it is. And you look at libraries like D3JS, you, you get a sense of just how much horsepower we have available to us in these things. It, there was a period there in sort of the IE time frame, and again, it's the beginning of HTML5, where both Chrome and IE were putting out new versions of their browsers every few weeks. They weren't declaring the major version numbers. They were patch updates, they were betas, and things like that. But for, for those of us that were deeply immersed in Internet technology, these were manifestations of what the web could be. And you know, it got very exciting. And in the midst of all of that, as these... Uh, engines, which were you know largely available for anybody to experiment with, started being experimented with. We started thinking about JavaScript outside of the browser. It was no longer just a scripting language for for facilitating web pages. It was its own executable. Hmm. Have you been following the WebAssembly project closely? Yes. What's your perspective on the status of that, and what are well, the implications of WebAssembly? Well, Web WebAssembly, Web Component, like again, to me, these all look like trying to take this language to the next level. And you are seeing different agreements between teams. You're seeing folks that have strong philosophies in maintaining very open approaches or very free approaches versus folks that are trying to commercialize. You know, and I'm not all about the money by any stretch of the imagination, but I need to make a living too. And I also see that commercial technologies tend to be have greater longevity. When I can be paid to do things, it keeps functioning. When you look at the most successful open source projects out there, things like Angular and heck, things like C Sharp, they, while they are technically free and sitting in the open source community, they are also maintained by paid developers. You know, some form or another. The money has to come from somewhere. As much as we work on our passion projects, and goodness knows I know about that with Humanitarian Toolbox, you also have to eat. And so we are feeding money into the system one way or the other. So if you look at the battles around stuff like web components and WebAssembly, you are looking at folks that are conflicting over how open, what's, what's really free and what's really paid, and how are these things going to be sustainable. You know, if you're an enterprise developer, you're betting on a technology that your company is likely to use for five-plus years. If the browser bails on it, and this has happened, you will go back to the WebSockets debacle where Google put WebSockets into the mainstream version of Chrome very early on. And because it was so powerful, developers started building stuff against WebSockets. And then it was shown to have a serious security problem. And Chrome's answer to quickly fix it was the next build of Chrome didn't have WebSockets. Hmm. And it broke a bunch of apps. And that makes people sad. You know That, that could be a career-limiting event to have someone who's poured their heart and soul into building an app inside of their organization, and suddenly it's busted. Oh, and by the way, we can't get to the old version of Chrome anymore because they've been doing this rapid-fire update, and the back-end ones are hard to get to. Mm. So, you know, I, the concerns are real. We have evidence of these kinds of problems, people being burned from it before. Could they be a little overblown? Yeah. Do we need to have this conversation in the public? Yeah, we really do, so that we go into it with open eyes and know the potential risk.
an equally interesting conversation around competitors is the cloud provider competition. And, you know, it's interesting watching these companies develop their different cloud strategies. You know, at Build, there were all these booths in the expo hall for the different Microsoft Azure cloud services. And I went around to them and talked to them. And uh, I was at F8 a couple weeks ago. I saw, you know, different Facebook booths. Facebook's not really doing a cloud thing and i think that's for the best i think it's it's intelligent <laughs> to because it's like you know it's rather than trying because the thing is it seems like azure and google and amazon kind of look at each other and whenever one of them does something they're like oh we need to get that too and so they're all trying to be supersets of each other's right. functionality and it leads to all this copying while at the same time you know kubernetes is making everything more portable Yep. So so it doesn't even it almost doesn't matter to copy somebody else's service and if you can make just a restful API call to Microsoft's image recognition service or Amazon's image recognition service there's not it's not like a there's no if if Google builds an an image recognition as a service API then why would Microsoft also build one because there's not any like tight integration there but I don't know. Maybe I'm not seeing the future far enough, but doesn't it, doesn't it seem somewhat wasteful to have all three of these giant cloud providers trying to copy each other with feature parity when it seems like there's really effective interoperability between the clouds anyway? And, and I think you're trying to maintain that interoperability while trying to be innovative at the same time. So yeah, I'm I am always concerned about the Me Too service, but. It also depends on how critical that is. You know, at some point there's a checklist item that says I can't go ahead with you without that. So you're you're getting pressure from your own group that's trying to innovate to do something original. It has a vision, you know. And at the same time, you have to look at what are the market forces. You know, you've got your marketing guys, the inbound marketing guys that are getting pressure from customers saying I need these things, and they're trying to balance all those things at once. You know, if there's any complaint I have about Microsoft's Azure right now, and you saw this at Build, there's just so many products. You're trying to sort out, well, how do all these things play together? Do all these things play together? And I don't even know half the time if Microsoft knows. But, you know, AWS is in the same boat as well. They've <laughs> created a marketplace where you're just looking around going, well, there's four front ends. Which one do I want to use? Like, it's, it's very challenging to try and sort all of that out. And Google's the new guy in some respects that they really, you know, came out of a valley startup mindset for their cloud product. And all their original customers were, you know, Python-esque and, and, and focused on getting a quick launch. They don't have the same infrastructure around the world. But if you, you know, are on the Western U.S. and Canada, you don't care. That's fine. There's plenty here. But uh, elsewhere, it's, it's harder to use. So I think they've got an infrastructure challenge. Kubernetes is stunning. You know, so is Docker, and so is Service Fabric, for that matter. Like, there's, there are really good bits out there, but they're all young. They all need to be rationalized to some degree, and they still seem much better suited to greenfield projects, and the vast majority of us don't get the choice to do greenfield. We've got stuff to maintain. We're considering migration paths, but none of the migration paths are simple at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a consumer, I certainly don't mind having this embarrassment of riches to choose between these mm -hmm. three giant companies with huge reserves of cash 
that are competing with each other on functionality and price. It's it's a really good time to be a developer. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of people competing for your attention and, and trying to offer you everything you can. I, I sweat about the race to the bottom because the race to the bottom means, you know, at some point if the thing's basically free, then you become the product. You know, that's always my concern, right? Is when you don't know who's paying, you know, where the value proposition is, you're the value proposition. Hmm. So I, I hope there's enough money that I'm paying for something that you're still working on my behalf, not just trying to exploit me. I don't, that's what I worry when I see these rapid price drops. It's like, well, how is this going to be sustained then? How does this, you know, survive as a useful product long-term that isn't exploitative of what hits, what we believe are, we thought we were customers, turned out we were the product. So how, um, how, how do you think they would exploit you? Like they, to take a peek at your database and start selling your database or something? Well, that, I mean, that, that's a pretty blunt version of that, but... <laughs> Yeah, along those lines. I mean, you look at what is Facebook, right? But making a living off of knowing who you are because you believe you're the customer in the Facebook ecosystem and, and sharing your information with your friends. In reality, the customer is the advertiser and your shared information is the ingredients it needs to, uh, to actually make that advertising effective. So the cloud isn't there yet. I hope it never gets there. But when I see cuts to costs of, of cloud products every month i'm like at what point is this no longer sustainable and because i'm making big bets on the cloud you know i'm making multi-year commitments with my customers into the cloud mm-hmm. i don't want this to be unstable right this is it's supposed to be plumbing I w- i'm willing to pay for the plumbing don't break the plumbing yeah well thankfully you can lift and shift with the kubernetes and the docker stuff and hopefully you know even if all three of the major cloud providers decide to close up shop you can go to DigitalOcean or <laughs> Linode. Or even just pull it on-prem, right? Or I mean, that's, it on-prem. Uh, but that's what I like, you know, and I think one of the things for folks that, that care about, I don't want vendor lock-in, even when the vendor is this titanic of industry. The fact that I can have that option for some degree of additional complexity. You know, the fact that Microsoft is offering up service traffic as software that you can install on AWS, and then it's betting they can run it better, which is a fair bet, I admit. Right. And same with Kubernetes. You know, I think Google's got a head start on Kubernetes, but you can run Kubernetes in, in Azure. I mean, that to me is a good thing. Yeah. I, I would almost look at it more as a check lock box item that it's like, no, the question was, am I locked into this vendor? And the answer is no, I have a checkbox that says I could run this elsewhere. I don't know if I ever will yeah. or even should, but I could. Mm-hmm. You work on Humanitarian Toolbox. That's a project that you started. And I think it's important for somebody who could conceivably be a software podcaster or a software media personality or Microsoft personality, whatever you could otherwise do, you could make very good money without writing any code or without being deeply involved in an engineering project. Uh, I know that with Software Engineering Daily, there was a period of time where I was just doing a lot of reporting Mm -hmm. and a lot of podcasting, and I did find myself getting distanced from the day-to-day problems of a programmer and that doesn't necessarily need lead to worse content but i think there is a complementarity between reporting on software and writing software so since you know since that time i've i've gotten more involved in some other software projects i still don't write a lot of code but i i am working on some software projects so What's been your experience with Humanitarian Toolbox, and how does it 
complement your work with .NET Rocks? Well, Humanitarian Toolbox really came out of .NET Rocks in the sense that I wanted to be able to support something that developers could relate to. And we had done lots of charitable work and, and promotion of charitable works around software. And if you know software, you know that even when you give software away, software is never free. Software is free the same way a puppy is free. It, you know, it takes care and feeding. And I had been involved with things like give camps where we'd worked over the weekend to build a brochure where a website for a charity great endeavor and, and good fun too. But at the end of the weekend, I get to go home, go back to my regular job. The charity has to live with that site. And if you're really dedicated to that charity, and I, and I hope you would be, you know, maybe several times a year, you'll go back and spend another weekend and continue improving that site and helping them with it. But sustainability in software, in my mind, is everything, especially at this point in the industry, when we are doing this massive move into mobile and the cloud is becoming this huge thing, I think that charitable organizations not technical or, that are not technical organizations, they just haven't had a chance to embrace all of this. So Humanitarian Toolbox came out of a, how do I let developers take this amazing set of skills that they're, they're maturing and, and evolving and allow them to, to work on these harder problems of saving lives? We focused on disaster response as, as the scenario for that. And that turned into an open, an open source initiative. So the toolbox is literally a toolbox, bunch of different apps. These apps are all built through GitHub. Anybody can work on them. Anybody can use them. I don't pick what charities get to use our products. They choose if they want to use them. And, but we can allow anyone to contribute from anywhere. So and I'm, go ahead. But what, well, what kind of software is traditionally used in a disaster response? That's an awesome question and not a simple answer anymore because disaster response is no longer traditional. If you back up 20 years, typical hurricane response, there's about six organizations that would come out to deal with that. And they tended to be large, backed by governments and having their own infrastructure. Today, more than 200 organizations would appear. Because of the internet, because of social media, because of this new ability to see the whole world, everybody's willing to contribute in one form or another to support different organizations coming in. And so that fragmentation of response is part of the problem. Now, there's lots of different kinds of software that plays roles in this. One of the projects we work on is called the Crisis Check-In Project. So you have literally hundreds of organizations with, with potentially thousands of volunteers descending on a location like Haiti, right, which is one of the greatest humanitarian disasters that exists in the world today and, by the way, is still continuing. Organizing all of those people is a very difficult challenge knowing what skills they've got, knowing where they are, when the, uh, how long they're staying, you know, what they can work on, and getting them into the teams that are necessary to be productive, that takes a lot of time. And I've got, I, while I've never been to Haiti, I've seen the photographs of the disaster coordination sites and so forth, where it's, it's walls of post-it notes and maps trying to keep all these teams orderly. And it's like, you know, software could do a lot there. So the crisis check-in service really deals with a few things. One is properly documenting the individual skills and their capabilities so that we have a data form of figuring out all the people are on the site, what they can do to help organize teams to go into the field to, to do support, what resources available and so forth, and then allowing them also to provide feedback on here is materials that are needed in different locations, 
here we found a cache of water that may have been misplaced and, and needs to be distributed and so on. Hmm. And by the way, even in a place like Haiti, cell phones limp along. You know, the cell phone network is never perfect, even in the best of times, but it's never fully broken either. So while they may be knocked down to 2G speeds, smart software can still work in that context and we can keep communication working. And so when someone comes on site, the disaster coordinators, because we have the geolocation of the phone, I mean, you know, this person's available, these are the skills, here's where they are, here's who they work with, and you can get them to work saving lives and improving conditions faster. But equally important, when they leave the site, you've got to think about a disaster site as massive as Haiti. It's not always easy to get out. You may have planned to come in for just a few weeks of volunteerism, <laughs> but there may or may not be a ride for you coming back out. And so when you're ready to go, you start just going to the airport every day with your bag, hoping for a ride. Yeah. And when you do get that ride, you're gone. And you may or may not have been able to notify everyone back at the back end that you've left. So the app also helps with the checkout process. Mm -hmm. That as soon as it gets into the world and sees that it's no longer on the site, it can send a message back to say, this person's now left the site. Mm. If you think about that from a software perspective, this is not rocket science by any stretch of imagination. There's a few interesting challenges on this, but making that software robust enough, reliable enough, bandwidth sensitive enough, easy enough to use that, that relief workers are already organized with it in advance, it significantly improves response times. Do the disaster relief workers want to use it? Because I think of a lot of, I almost think when I think of like the Red Cross, I think yep. of like the government where, okay, we've got some great technology we could use, but we're allergic to technology, so we're not going to use it. Well, and, and just to be very, very clear, Red Cross is not government, right? I know a lot about software and I've worked in the community for a long time. I'm learning about charity. I'm learning about disaster response and it's been an interesting education. You know, the reality is most disaster response workers, and they tend to be volunteers, especially with organizations like the Red Cross, are just like any other consumer. They have an iPhone. In fact, they're wildly frustrated. They can't use it. Mm. So from that perspective, it's very useful. But you also bring up an important point. When I talk to professional relief workers, guys that are used to being on the ground, their first question is, how is this better than pen and paper? Uh. Because... They've had technology fail them before. Right. You know, they're very aware of that. It's like you cannot argue with the battery life of pen and paper. Yeah. Or the, or the resolution for that matter. Yeah. Well, this is like I, my dad is a, is a doctor and or he, he, he's kind of retired. But, you know, I get into arguments with him sometimes. I, I've, I think I've learned over time his position. And I'm more sympathetic to it. I'm, I'm gotten better at listening. But. You know, he'll say things like, uh, you know, EMRs are just, you know, they've just been such a disaster. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, made me want to, made me look forward to retirement is the pressure on doctors to use EMR and like electronic medical records. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it becomes a burden, but both because the, you know, the doctor is used to, his workflow, his or her workflow. Yes. And, but also just because you have these companies that are just producing software where user experience is not top of mind. What's, what's top of mind is how do we lock in the user or how, do, how are we compliant with these draconian HIPAA compliance policies? And, but, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm conflating 
the the experience or the, or the customer like a like a doctor or a government bureaucrat with a, a relief worker. I don't know. Like, is, is there? So I, I, I mean, I would really put a doctor and a relief worker side by side. Okay. Ultimately, they are focused on the survival of their patient. Right. And they will not allow anything to get between them and that. Right. You know, I think their hearts, better than anyone, are in the right place. Yes. They know exactly what's most important. I am focused on my patient. This either facilitates me or doesn't. And if it makes me hesitate, if it makes me take longer, then it has failed. Right. The bar is very, very high, and thank goodness for that. Yeah. The, the, our process of testing software for on-disaster relief sites is actually driven largely by FEMA. So FEMA conducts disaster trials on a regular basis. So they will simulate an earthquake in Los Angeles. Now, this is as much practice for the relief workers as it is an opportunity to test new tools. So we get regular opportunities to put our software in the field in controlled conditions to see, does this make you more effective? I'm not going to force software on anybody, least of all, someone who's going to save my life in, in the next earthquake. I live in the earthquake belt, too. I want my goal is simply for them to say, oh, my goodness, I would never go in the field without this. Like, that's the bar that's set for me. I'll get all the other stuff on the back end. You know, I come at this very much from an engineering mindset where I want the cloud to be able to coordinate this data. I really want to see, can we get instrumentation in place that allows us to show that we're improving in our ability to respond from one event to another? Are we actually getting on the ground sooner? Are we saving more lives? Is our time to recovery shorter? Can we get into the restoration cycle sooner? Can we get people back in their homes sooner? And that, But that's the back end, the bigger long-term vision. The only way you get to be a part of that conversation is to first serve the guy on the ground so that he can actually do all of those things so that we can measure it. And it's a very hard bar to jump through. And I like that we're doing this with volunteer developers, but professional project managers. Mm. So because now you're motivated by purpose. I am not in a rush to deliver. I don't have a budget per se. I have deadlines based on our opportunities to test and our opportunities to go into the field. But I would rather do this right. My goal here is sustainable software, software that gets better over time and that can be measured in its effectiveness in the field. That's the only measure that matters. And the good news is when you're working with volunteers, I think they all get into that. You know, This is a passion project for everyone that's involved. So are you paying, are the, the project managers are paid? So we are, we, we're a 501c3, we're a registered charity. Mm -hmm. And so we're raising money so that we can employ full-time project managers. We have some part-time ones right now. But, you know, we're using GitHub as our way to build software. But unlike a lot of open source projects, we're not asking developers to think up the great new feature. We've been gathering the requirements from the professionals and breaking them down into work items as issues in GitHub. And so we're asking developers to take a look at the project, make sure that project speaks to you. There's usually videos and materials so you can understand what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. There's a bunch of different projects there. And then pick up a work item and contribute to it. We have a good pipeline for that. But I've shown categorically over the years that the ability of a developer to contribute to the project has everything to do with how well written and maintained those issues are. And that's mm -hmm. why we need professional project management. 
but it's highly leverageable. For what I pay a project manager in a year, we can manage a lot of projects and get a lot of developers productive at the same time. We could run. We usually do this in the form of codeathon. So we'll we'll find a conference. You know, I'm thinking about that conference in in Wisconsin Dells, one of our original supporters from many years ago. It's, it runs in, in August, and they have a two-day workshop day on the weekend before the main conference. And they are kind enough to donate to us a room and some food so that we can work together to make a contribution. And what I'm, I'm only looking for 25, 30 folks to come out. But I know from experience, everybody there is going to get a check-in two or three, and they're going to have a great time and maybe be a little inspired. But from that comes one or two people who just keep contributing who th- say, this is what I like doing on Wednesday nights now, that my hobby is adding to this piece of software that can save lives. And so if you go and look on GitHub at our repositories uh, at, uh, at HTBox, you'll see 120 contributors to the already project, or maybe it's 130 now. But the top 20 all have you know, 50 plus contributions now. This is part of their routine, but no single dominant contributor either. You know, you typically an open source project, you have your messiah, you have your dictator for life, that's the largest contributor that was probably the creator. And then they may have a few disciples around them that have long-term contributors as well. Our projects don't look like that. They're a group of people that work as a, really in a peer relationship. They have regular Google Hangouts for some projects every, every other week or so on a Saturday. They'll hop on a call and talk about where we're at and continue moving it forward. We have access to the domain experts in the form of you know, relief workers and folks that work for the Red Cross and other organizations. And uh, we get good support from organizations like Microsoft and Google mm. so we can get people help to build the right software. What do you see as the pros and cons of the benevolent dictator versus the more flat organization? Well, the benevolent dictator is how most open source has been done. It takes a visionary, right? Without a doubt, it takes someone with focus. The difference we're doing here is that person is not necessarily a developer, and we're, we're getting a little further away from that sort of almost uh, adrenaline-driven or, pater- or, or testosterone-driven approach of, I have a better idea, I know how to drive this forward, and, and more into a, look, I've worked with these teams, these are our concerns, I think this is the right way to do it. And everybody has feedback for that process, but I think we've appealed to almost a different kind of open-source contributor, someone who is not so much, you know, the three forces that I see that are matter to a software developer today, once your bills are paid, and I'm, I'm tapping directly from Daniel Pink's drive here, Autonomy, mastery, purpose, right? Autonomy meaning I want to work on what I want to work on the way I want to work. Mastery being I'm pressing against my skills to be better, knowing I'll never be perfect, you can only get better. And purpose meaning I'm working on something that matters to me. A lot of open source projects in my mind come into the mastery category more than anything. I'm pressing against the edges of my skills. And it's always autonomous because it's volunteer, right? I mean, that's an inevitable truth, right? That you, you choose to work on an open source project, it's a volunteer thing. HDBox is a purpose-driven mindset. We're here to save lives. We're here to write software to make those guys that work on the ground. I'm never going to be the guy that works on the ground. That's, I'm getting too old. And, you know, and I'm not that guy. But if I can help that guy, well, that's something I want to do. That's purpose to me. Of course I get autonomy here, that I get to choose what I want to work on. What's a success story for how you've seen HTBox help a disaster response effort? Well, let me talk about a, a 
a preventative project because the disaster responses are much more complicated to talk about. There's lots of rules on how we get through testing and so forth. And so it's been hard to, you know, we're not in a place right now where I can talk about how we save lives in a hurricane, right? It's just takes, it's tough to get into the field in those scenarios. But we worked with a project from the Red Cross called Already. And Already's real mission is about preventative work using skilled volunteers. So the scenario we've been testing against is installing smoke detectors in homes that need them. So the Red Cross has this huge initiative where they will give away smoke detectors to anybody who doesn't have a working one. And but the only tricky part with a smoke detector is getting installed in the right place in your house so that it can actually help you in the case of a house fire. And that takes a skilled volunteer. That takes a volunteer firefighter, takes a construction person, somebody who knows the right way to put a smoke detector in. And there are folks that are willing to volunteer their time to do that. Now, how do you as the Red Cross use that time well? So they run campaigns. They're in the, in the parking lot of a, a Home Depot saying, do you need a smoke detector? And they're taking down names and numbers and addresses they can do that over several weeks and then eventually organize, they're trying to use their volunteers' times efficiently, organize a Saturday where they hand out the smoke detectors to the installers and a list of addresses and they go around. And the problem now is that weeks have gone by and people forget. And, and so your install rate, you maybe try and do six smoke detectors in a day and might get two installed. Now we introduce software to the equation, and the software does a bunch of different things. Not only is it faster to run the campaign, we can use more social media, we have map coordination, we're quicker to geolocate. The volunteer can now use their phone, so they don't have to come to a central site. We can distribute the smoke detectors in a different way, so they're spending less time getting ready to install, more time installing. And then there's little tricks in the app. So that when they're heading to the next address, they can hit a button. We have a back-end service, and then it's calling that residence to say, your installer is on the way, you know, just the way the cable companies don't. We do that. Mm -hmm. And so our install rates got, get up to four or five successful installs wow. in a day. That saves lives. Of course. You know, that makes a difference. And it's just a bit of technology. And we spent less time. You know, volunteer time is precious. We only have so much of it to give. And as organizers, we are remiss if we ever waste it. So I feel like that tool has fallen into exactly the spot where everybody benefits. You know, we're getting to this mindset of an outcome rather than an output. Not that we just, not that, it's not enough that we just tried, that we actually got the detector in the home of the mm -hmm. person who needed it. That's the measure. Mm -hmm. Well, it is tremendous how often very simple technology prevents horrendous disasters you look at things like the checklist manifesto absolutely you know, which is just like hey if doctors have a checklist that they do around surgery or if a pilot has a checklist of things that they check before they take off it prevents lots of preventable deaths or things like a seat belt like seat belt pretty straightforward innovation saves lots of lives and then alerting people to the fact that, hey, a smoke detector might save your life, or yep. carbon monoxide detector. Yes. These things are very simple technological developments. I mean, we can get very excited about saving lives with things like new surgeries or developing new drugs, but there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. Right. Well, and, it, and especially when you get on the preventative side. Like, I'm we wanted to focus on disaster response, but we recognize that a house fire is also a disaster. And the best kind of disaster response you can have is to make the disaster never happen. 
You know, that's what a smoke detector actually is. It's a disaster prevention device. Yeah. All right, Richard. And, well, and, uh, well, go ahead. And there's another a couple other things that are happening in the humanitarian toolbox right oh, now. Yeah, now please. that we're one thing is we're working closely with Microsoft Philanthropies. So Microsoft Philanthropies is part of Satya Nadella's initiative of Public Cloud for Public Good. The simple way to look at it is Microsoft's offering us all the Azure we can eat. So we've gone from we're going to build this software to we will operate it on your behalf. So again, lowering the barrier to, of entry, which also means I'm now pushing for volunteers in the operations space to maintain these products as we're providing them to different organizations. And the other thing that's starting to happen is we're talking to organizations where they have had software developed by volunteers in whatever form, and those volunteers are now gone, and they want to rehabilitate the software. They want to continue to develop against it. They want it to continue to grow. So I'm in conversations with a bunch of different organizations to bring those apps in. You know, a project like Already, which is a total greenfield project. We wrote it from scratch in ASP.NET Core. Ton of fun and really useful. But a brownfield project, bringing a new project on board where we already have value, right? Where it's already saving people. What it needs to be is better. This is the initiatives working on this year is rehabilitating, getting that software into shape so it can be compiled, it can be added to, the new features can be put on, and we can continue to support the people that need it. So I'm hoping that I can appeal to the broadest section of developers. Well, however you like to work, however you want to press against your skills, I have a project for you. Hmm. All right. Listeners should definitely check out Humanitarian Toolbox and, of course, .NET Rocks, which is a podcast I've been a fan of for several years. So, Richard, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. I really appreciate it. And obviously, thank you for inviting me to Microsoft Build and getting me set up with some podcast booths. It was a lot of fun, and I hope to see you at future conferences as well. Oh, yeah, we're going to do more, Jeff. No toys about it. Thanks so much for having me on. Really fun to do this.